Hello listeners, welcome back to About South. I'm back this week after Kelly's fantastic episode with Hillary Holly from Fair Fight. This week we have another amazing episode. We're talking to Dr. Kalinda Lee from the Atlanta History Center. She's the Vice President for Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships, and she is responsible for the amazing exhibit they have that outlines the history of Atlanta. It is truly an amazing exhibit, and you should really get to the History Center to check it out. As you'll hear in our conversation, Dr. Lee is firmly invested in thinking about not only what we tell when we tell history, but how we tell it. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Today we're here with Dr. Kalinda Lee of the Atlanta History Center, who has graciously shown us around the Gather Round exhibit, and you've really been a part here at the History Center of pivoting, in some ways, how Atlanta's telling its history. And I wanted to talk to you today about, maybe particularly in this national climate, and even today when we lost Toni Morrison, which is maybe we should scratch all our questions and just talk about Toni Morrison, but why is pivoting the way we tell these histories so important right now? Well, I wasn't anticipating your comment about Toni Morrison, but she is my favorite author, and I think that that's actually a really wonderful place to begin Um, because, you know, she spent decades reminding us that there is no such thing as a partial truth. You tell the whole story as fully and completely and accurately as you can, or maybe walk away from the whole thing. And so um, I would say, um, while I know that people are inclined to say, in this day and age and in this climate, and as an historian, I know that the day and age and the climate um, have always proven challenging and have always demanded truth-telling and have always demanded um, representation for everyone. Because first of all, we want to do good history. And doing good history means you do complete history, you tell as many stories as possible in as pluralistic a way as possible to understand how, you know, one single experience impacts many different people in many different ways and they each have their truth about it and it's really important in terms of not only what happened then but how we understand the past and what we can learn from it and do with it um being able to see those 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 multiple perspectives um, enables you on some level to have empathy for the people that you share this planet with and their um, perspectives and experiences that might be really different from your own and we are sorely lacking in that. And how does that work? I think a lot of what you've said, that's probably true across the country and certainly across the globe. What are the unique challenges about trying to do that in Georgia and in Atlanta? 
people do history for a variety of different reasons, right? So there are some people who are history scholars and even buffs who are just really enthusiastic about knowing the minutia of the past. I've actually never been one of those people, and people are always actually surprised to learn that, that as a person with a PhD in the, the, the topic, I'm not all that interested in the trivia. Um, but the main reason I think that we we do this work, I'm going to quote a colleague of mine and say that, you know, history is the stories that we tell ourselves about the past to explain the present. And so in this region in particular, we have told ourselves or been taught um, to be to be fair about agency. It's not always everybody choosing to tell themselves, but we have learned stories about the past that help to legitimize it helped to explain sometimes to explain away uh, present circumstances that are um, that can't that can be inspiring and, and positive and all of those things but are often really challenging to say the least and sometimes downright um, deplorable and so, you know, really, really devastating. And so this is a region that's really steeped in that. And let's just face it, one huge reason for that is because the history of this region is steeped in human enslavement. And the prosperity of the region um, from the founding of this nation was really deeply, intricately, inextricably wedded to a degree of um, inhumanity and misery that is very difficult to reconcile when we want so desperately to look back and celebrate a glorious past. Um, and, um, and so when you don't reckon with something and kind of move beyond it be because you've reckoned, I, I think that it haunts you. It perpetually haunts you. And we are perpetually engaging these conversations about, for example, whether we consider the hard stuff in Southern history, like enslavement, like segregation, like uh, marginalization and of women and denial of citizenship rights, right? like Native American genocide, all of these things, we still are kind of stuck in these questions about whether we consider it. I think that that's nonsensical. If we're going to understand our past, then we have to look at the big issues in our past. And the big issues in our past include um, change and innovation and resilience, and they also include um, challenge and struggle and um, pain and um, and even dehumanization. And so, you got to do it all, or you don't do it at all. Do you think that? In your work with Atlanta history, I sometimes see, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, the I'm not from Georgia, I'm from Atlanta, that the Atlanta exceptionalism, how do you negotiate that? Because sometimes I think people think, and we were walking through the exhibit, that maybe people think maybe Atlanta's off the hook somehow of considering this. And how do you take on that attitude? Yeah, you know, Atlanta is not just often this place that's considered the exception to Georgia. It's often considered the exception to the whole South. 
Yes. Right? Yes. And I think that some of that is about a homegrown piece, right? So um, the history is that in the wake of the Civil War, as the South sought to rebuild economically as a region, and um, the powers that be, both politically and especially um, financially in terms of business, wanted to attract investors, Atlanta saw an opportunity as a rail hub. Yes, people focus on that a lot. But I would say more than that, as a place that evinced a certain kind of attitude about um, a certain level of scrappiness, but also just kind of a, a particular entrepreneurial business kind of drive that Atlanta could be the capital of the New South, right? And so there's lots of conversation about that. There's lots of push push with that. It's not so much that Atlanta didn't buy into the ideologies, for example, of racism or buy into the ideologies of sectionalism um, in terms of, of still kind of really feeling the strife of the Civil War. But Atlanta was really kind of out there saying, but we can get past it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we, if you pay us enough money, we'll get over anything. We'll get over it. We'll yeah. get over it, or we'll ignore it at least, and we'll be polite about it. And that's really all that was required. And so Atlanta was really invested in that. And over time, I want to be honest and say that that particular kind of way of being, this Atlanta way, because I think it's a really important part of the air quotes Atlanta way. Um, was taken on by both black and white communities. So, you know, if the optics were bad around uh, particular kinds of, say, like racialized violence or whatever, then we were going to downplay it, we were going to talk around it, we were going to, you know, not that these things didn't happen here, but we were going to kind of, as a city, try to distance ourselves from it. And as the city grew and the city's population grew and the metro area grew, some of that ideology went with it, right? So there was a kind of um, exceptionalism in that way. But I think there's also an exceptionalism um, about the way that other people, that is non-Atlantans, looked at and talked about Atlanta. And I think some of that is because the city kept growing and kept growing and kept growing. So it really became a place for migrants, um, both international, at some point more contemporarily, especially international, but also people who were moving from rural to urban life, from throughout the South especially. And so you get a lot of in-migration of people who really do come with all kinds of different ideas, who come with all kinds of different kind of cultural sensibilities from various places that spawned them. And even people who were rejected um, by um, maybe smaller, more provincial, spaces and come to Atlanta kind of looking for some kind of haven or community just in a larger population. So you get a little bit of something that's somewhat cosmopolitan and metropolitan as a consequence of that. And then the third thing that I think is really important in this, um, particularly from the early to mid 70s forward, is Atlanta is a major site of reverse migration for African Americans. And so, you know, what that's about is people whose families in the first and second great migrations out of the South after the first and second world wars, um, who fled the American South, certainly looking for work in Northern and Western centers, but also people who were looking 
um, for an escape from particular sorts of racialized violence and um, looking for an escape from Jim Crow. They didn't always find it, but they were certainly seeking it um, and other kinds of um, opportunity. Those folks left and went to the urban north, the west, the midwest, and their progeny have been returning south in incredible numbers. Um, but I always talk about Atlanta as this fictive homeland, right? Like we're coming back home to the south, but we're not coming back home to that little tiny town in Mississippi that still looks too much like the one that your great granddaddy left. So Atlanta feels right, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a slower pace of life, it's a much more reasonable cost of living, say, than your LA or your Chicago or your New York or whatever, but it's, um, it's a little bit more cosmopolitan, it's a little less anchored in the kind of um, small townishness, sometimes racial vitriol and those kinds of things that um, lack of economic uh, um, diversity and opportunity. So all those things kind of mitigate against going back to those places and people come to Atlanta. So all of that has created this kind of um, sense of Atlanta as a, um, an island in, in the region for a lot of people. I think that's so interesting. I like that idea that Atlanta can serve as this fictive home. Because I think something that strikes me about looking at the Atlanta exhibit is your attempt to tell a story that's panoramic of what Atlanta has been. And of course, people also have their assumptions that Atlanta tears everything down, Atlanta you know, oh, what history is left in Atlanta? Because it's always, it's either burned down or torn down and I think it's simultaneously a fictive home and it kind of gets to float free a little bit or people think it floats free. So how did you negotiate that in trying to tell a comprehensive or a pluralistic story when there is sometimes the assumption that Atlanta is a city that gets rid of its history? So maybe I'm a weird historian because I'm less anchored in the stuff than, than many people are, maybe. Um, I'm not so anchored in um, the extant buildings, or even though I love artifacts and work in a museum, I'm not particularly inclined to geek out over artifacts. Um, You're not an archivist. I'm not. And um, although I love archives and could spend my whole life, you know, in the dust in an archive, I think that um, I heard something interesting just today, actually, and I don't know who to credit with this quote, but the quote was that the best memorial is a conversation. And I think that that really sums up a lot of what I think thought about when I was developing that exhibition and what I continue to think about um, as Vice President for Historical Interpretation here at the Atlanta History Center, and that is, what does it look like to spark a conversation? If artifacts can serve to spark a conversation, if 
old architecture can serve to spark a conversation, if historical documents can serve to spark a conversation, if oral history can serve to spark a conversation, so be it. How wonderful. If none of those things do that work or none of those things are available, then we'd better get creative and fast. Um, because the work is about remembering. The work is about figuring out how that past is relevant to what's happening right now. And I think that that has something too to do with this idea when you look at these different patterns and waves of different migrations into the city. I don't think people typically think of, oh, it tears everything down or rebuilds everything. It's never a compliment, right? Or rarely I think it's a compliment. It's normally, I think somehow maybe it goes to questions of authenticity about who belongs here or who remembers what or what a real Atlanta was. Like, is it a declension narrative? So I think sometimes like, it's important to tell those stories that it's always shifting and changing because otherwise people think, well, there must have been a real Atlanta and it was some moment in the past that's static and history's job is just to get us back to that show us that moment but it sounds like what you're suggesting instead is that no the real atlanta is this layered thing yes absolutely it's so funny that you um bring that up because i just i have this conversation with people all the time when they say ah you know atlanta is such an inauthentic space Atlanta is constantly blowing things up now. It has no past, it has no identity. And I'm always saying, no, this process of kind of constant regeneration, this process of thinking about um, your identity as a place in very strictly commercial terms, this process of being willing to, to bury the hatchet, even sometimes, you know, in each other's back, but to bury the hatchet in order to um, to, try, to try to create like this sense of prosperity across all kinds of lines of dissension, for better or for worse. Um, that has been Atlanta's identity since the founding of this city in the ways that we know it. So basically, the foundings of this city post, you know, Creek trading post, that has been a huge part of um, what defines the space. Atlanta was the first city in the history of the nation that launched an ad campaign, hired a Madison Avenue firm and launched an ad campaign to promote a city. We were the very first to do it. And we were so happy with ourselves after we did it in 1923. We did it again in 1961. Um, so when people talk, for example, about the ways in which, you know, Atlanta was just recently trying to get the Amazon headquarters as an example, for example, of this kind of selling out. Well, from a historical perspective, there's absolutely no selling out in that. From a historical perspective, this is exactly what they did in 23. And in 1961, if you go like, you know, look at the ads and things, it's so interesting where they're saying, come here and set up your headquarters. You don't have to be of this space. In fact, we, we don't care at all. In fact, it's even better maybe that you're not because you've already proven yourself a success. I mean, we are at the Atlanta History Center. And if our listeners have not been here, this is a big, beautiful building. And 33 acres. It is, if any place in the city is maybe history with a capital H, this is history. I think maybe this is the space people think. 
What have been the reactions as the center has done things like reinstalled the cyclorama and given new context or tried to shift how people think about history in the center? What have been the variety of reactions and how do you respond to those or think about those in your work? Generally speaking, the reaction has been positive, I think. Um, if you're looking at things like you know, um, the number of visitors that we see um, on a regular basis, if you think about things like um, the comments that people leave or how engaged people across different um, demographics have become, um, then we're definitely seeing something that looks positive to me. But I should be really clear in saying that history matters. Right? It's the stories that we tell ourselves about the past um, to explain our present. Thank you, Dr. Gordon-Jones. Um, <laughs> and so, um, who, who, who happens to be the curator for the cyclorama. And so, um, one of the things that has also happened alongside positive reaction has been that there's been a lot of pushback and upset, too, because... It really shakes sometimes the way that people understand themselves. And those understandings have emotional weight, right? They have um, incredible um, psychic and emotional weight, even when they don't have a lot of intellectual weight. So for example, um, it had been the tradition, and when I say tradition, I mean this is what you found in textbooks, it's what you found on curricula, it's what you found certainly in public sites like historical societies and museums and on monuments and in you know public engravings and such. This notion that the Civil War was fought for some reason that had nothing to do with human enslavement. And that is in fact a fallacy. It's not a new interpretation. Um, while we have been given a lot of credit with doing work that has been kind of groundbreaking in terms of sharing that interpretation. It is only because institutions like this have clung for so long to interpretations that scholars debunked based on clear evidence decades and decades and decades ago. Right? Yeah, people were very clear in the period, oh, this is about enslavement. Indeed, and what we do in our um, work, for example, with school kids, is that we never just come in and give some speech and say, this is the truth and this is the way that you should think about things. We share with them primary source documents and we say, this is how you think critically for yourself. This is what you do to find evidence. Let's look at this evidence. What does it say? And you look at the Articles of Secession, state after state after state after state after state says, we are leaving the union for this particular reason. No, they're very clear. <laughs> they are very clear. They could not be more clear. Um, and so the effort to reinterpret that information in a way that denies that truth is politically motivated, right? It's sometimes personally motivated. You want to believe that you're you know, your father, grandfather, great-grandfather, so on and so forth, died for a just cause. Um, you want to believe that um, the, the community in which you live was standing for something um, um, just and laudable. And so over time, these things become 
derogir and then at a certain point you're like well my my certainly my fifth grade teacher wouldn't lie to me certainly my college professor wouldn't lie to me and so on and so forth and so on and so forth and your distance from the accuracy right in your textbooks and all and unfortunately your distance from the ability to gather the information and think critically for yourself (laughs) just grows and grows and grows and grows and so um That is incredibly problematic to me. I am happy on any day of the week to learn something new that upsets a conception that I had about the past. I love it. It's 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 really kind of what I do this work for, right? To learn something new, to have something that I thought I knew shook. But that's that's not always how everyone feels. And so, what we try to do um, with a lot of fervor, what I am what I am committed to doing is giving people the tools to do that work for themselves, providing a space where people can speak um, with clarity and respectfully about what the the documents, the, the memories of the past really teach us and tell us, and being able to have conversation with one another contemporarily in order to set the record straight. It is possible to set the record straight. This is not an insurmountable um, burden. We know in this country and we know in other countries that um, it has long been the case that the realities of the past have been obfuscated by regimes, by um, governments, by, and, and people dig it up and they share it in meaningful and illuminating and affirming, uplifting, freeing ways. And so, you know, I know I'm probably sounding really hyperbolic, but there's... I don't think you are, <laughs> but maybe. It's like, hello, preacher, I am choir. You know, there's a lot of opportunity for that. And also, um, we try to be led. I want to be led by the people with who I'm working with, right? You might not be trained as a professional historian, but... Um, you know things about the history of your community. You know things about the history of your church. You know things about the history of your family. And you might not be aware that those things that you know or those documents that you've saved or pictures that you have, you might not be aware how important and valuable they are, um, how much they add to our collective understanding how useful they might be for some scholar or student who comes along in 50 years and really needs to dig that up. So part of what I do is really forward-facing, right? You're building exhibitions and you're giving public speeches and all of those kinds of fun things, but a lot of it is also about saying to people, your stories matter. Please come in and share them. Let me sit down and just listen and record. Um, Your documents matter. Consider of sharing them with our repository. We have a big research center or some other. Or if you don't want to do that, just come here and let us show you how to save them for yourselves. You don't want to do that? We want to join forces with some other archives and we'll come to you and show you what it means to find an acid-free box and why you should keep that you know, under your bed as opposed to in your garage. Um, all that kind of stuff. And what I found in the process of doing that work is Atlantans absolutely do care about history. 
Atlanta is made up of Atlantans, and they do care about history, and they do want to preserve memory. One thing um, that's really crucial to the kind of question that you raised about um, maybe inaccuracies that we tell ourselves about the past in the region, there's all of this focus, right, in the American South on civil war. I mean, the lost cause looms large um, and never shall the flag be buried, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so for a moment, setting aside what's problematic about that interpretation, there is almost no conversation about Reconstruction. So it's like, there was the agrarian South, there was a war, people were enslaved, those people were not enslaved anymore. And then- Civil there rights was, movement. Right, right, or at least World War One or something, right? Like what happened? And there's all of this misinformation, misunderstandings, not only of the people in the past, but I would argue maybe, maybe of ourselves that are a consequence of that. So for example, if you, um, if you go from emancipation to the civil rights movement, you could be under the impression that people who were emancipated were not fighting for equal rights in all of those decades in between. You could be under the impression that people liked separate society and really didn't have a problem with it until a few kind of messianic figures showed up and suggested otherwise. You wouldn't know that there were you know, several African-Americans who served on the Georgia state legislature immediately after the war who were elected, interestingly, maybe to some extent must have been by blacks and whites. You might miss that there was a congressman who in the in the national legislature, you might miss that the first African-Americans who served on the Atlanta City Council were not during the civil rights era. They were during the reconstruction era. You miss all of that. There's a whole school in the Atlanta public school system, William Finch Elementary, that is named for a man who served in city council um, in 1868. And if you ask people in that neighborhood, and I dare say probably at that school, nobody knows who he was. And so those are really important understandings. It's not just like factoids, it's not just trivia, but they help you to understand that people have always had a will to equal access, have labored for that, have felt a stake in the community, and that might make you feel something different about your own past. It might also be troubling to you if you over-identify with people who kept people from that past. So one of the things that, um, you know, I talk about a lot with, with some colleagues in the museum world is that there is this interest in not alienating visitors by making them feel guilty. And I say again and again and again, to what extent does one need to feel guilty, explicitly guilty, about things that you didn't do. So if you sit with that for a moment and hold that, then what responsibility do I have to not be truthful and accurate and clear and do my job well because someone is over-identifying 
with people who came before them who they are not. The project is to understand the past in context so that we can better understand how we got to where we are and make better plans for the future together. Obfuscating that, leaning into the notion that I can't deal with the past because I'm somehow complicit in decisions that I didn't make, that's not useful. No. Now it is useful to be able to take that on to have to maybe disabuse yourself of some of the kind of hero worship that you might have had for ancestors or whomever came before and to think in a more sober way about the choices that people made and actually use that information to better plan for the future. But I would say, honestly, that's a task that we all have, right? I mean, you probably, maybe you're different than me. I didn't come from a family where I want to replicate everything that everybody who came before me did. And some of those people I love dearly and truly. But I'm another entity. And I hope that I can have a clear-eyed perspective about what it was that they were up to and maybe make some better decisions. And I dare say that my children and my children's children will be looking at me with the same lens. Right. And I think that I, I like how you talk about the guilt question there because having that worried about the guilt or having that guilt says more about how the receiver is attaching to a past, that actually is telling them something about themselves. It's not really about what your exhibit. Your exhibit is making them reflect. And then I say this in my classrooms all the time. If I have any students who listen to this, they will know what I'm getting ready to say, which is guilt is not a productive emotion. Maybe you have to experience it to get somewhere else, but you can't get stuck there because Guilt is, in a lot of ways, static and narcissistic. It is. Rather than, okay, then what's the next step? So what's not narcissistic and static is empathy. And we need to make a distinction between the two, right? So guilt is very much this kind of navel-gazing and, and strife around being disabused of whatever it was that you wanted to hold on to or, you know, being really overly invested in kind of self-flagellation, self-flagellation or whatever it is that you want to engage in. But empathy can be uncomfortable if you haven't practiced it, but it actually can produce something that is useful. And so the course in, I think, most meaningful in historical interpretation, right, and any kind of really pluralistic edu- uh, engagement, really any kind of thing that is about understanding where other people are coming from, the context that created them, their needs, their desires, um, their feelings even, is that you get to see those people as human beings who are your peers as such, whose lives are valuable like yours as such, who, whether they lived in the past or not, matter in the same ways that you do. And that is something that, as a society, we've kind of inured ourselves of, right? We are constantly othering somebody, right? And so I think that it does raise issues around broad-based humanism and justice if you're engaged in that kind of work. And that's tricky because a lot of our public-facing institutions will say, like, we're not a social justice institution. We're not an advocacy institution. 
I have been in one of those conversations before, and that, and I'm always like, but then what are we doing? And that might not be mission central, but if we are doing our work in a way that acknowledges the humanity of the subjects that we are considering, and that is the nature of this work, then we are in fact asking people to reflect on justice right, to reflect on what it means to live in a society in a meaningful and productive way, um, to consider the lessons of the past in terms of how you shape that. We are, we're asking people to do that. A lot of what you're talking about is reckoning with the past. And Atlanta is kind of going through a bit of a moment right now with your work here, the reopening of the Atlanta youth murders, which I know you've talked about elsewhere, even though these may seem like disparate events, where do you see Atlanta really taking on this reckoning? Is this happening or, I don't know, maybe we're at a bit of a precipice with development and gentrification. We have so much happening in the city. But from your perspective, how productively is the city reckoning with the past? Well, that was a tough question. <laughs> How productively is the city reckoning with the past? Um, let me say this. When you were phrasing your question, you said something about reopening the child murders. And you said um, reconsidering or something to that effect. Um, um, how we deal with the Civil War and the Confederate monuments and stuff. I think that one of the things that I have learned um, as I have focused on local history and really talking to communities about local history, those things were never closed. They were always open. Some of us had more distance or privilege to be able to turn away from the power of that dealing or not dealing but those chapters were not closed. If they were firmly closed, there would be no need to reopen them. People do not go around looking to open wounds and picket scabs for no reason. Um, and so I think that what we have done with the past is turn away from it or inaccurately and inadequately interpret it. And that is why there's always this glaring spotlight or at least this kind of, you know, little light shining in the background that just keeps you from sleeping well, um, that you know is there and that can persist for, well, shoot, in the case of the Civil War, the lost cause, the racialized violence in its wake, the failure of reconstruction and complete marginalization and, and dehumanization of folks in, in, in that moment. You're 150, 160 years. Um, the wounds are there and they still feel fresh. Are people ready to bring closure? I think a lot of people are. I mean, I think that this this is, make no mistake, right? This is not about posturing. This is an uphill climb. There are more people who would say, don't open this book, than who would say, do open this book, when you're talking about folks in positions of power. And I think that is true across race, 
Um, I think that that is true across lots of forms of identity. So um, there is certainly a call. There is certainly a comfort from some quarters to like, you know, just let it rest, even if it's not buried and doesn't rest easy. But I think that there are a lot of folks who feel like we deserve answers. Um, We deserve truth seeking, even if it's not definitive, right? Even if it's not all the truth telling, there's something really powerful, important in truth seeking. And there's a lot of momentum and energy behind that. And truth seeking in and of itself feels like justice. Truth seeking in and of itself feels like courage. Um, I think that it speaks well of people in this space and time that they think we have the stamina, the wherewithal, um, the intellectual capacity, um, the emotional ability to find the truth and sit with it and build something useful, maybe even incredible, maybe even really powerful from it. I think that that speaks volumes in a really positive way. So I don't know what Atlanta is going to do with this opportunity. I'm not clairvoyant, but I'm hopeful. Um, And I think it's a really good sign that people are not afraid to push. Or maybe people are afraid, but are doing it anyway. And that's, that's inspiring, too. That's our episode for this week. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Kalinda Lee for sitting down with us. Thanks also to the Atlanta History Center for allowing us to record. Adwa Danso produced this episode. About South is also produced by Gina Kaysen and me, Kelly Vines. Jessica Parker joins us this season as an assistant producer. About South is brought to you this week from East Atlanta Village. Brian Horton provides our music. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at aboutsouthpod. Next week, we'll be heading to Kentucky to talk with Dwight Billings about coal mining in Appalachia. Until then, we hope you have a great week.